The Pork and Feed the Birds is recorded on unceded Indigenous lands and we like to start the podcast by acknowledging that, by paying thanks and respects to Elders past and present and by asserting, as we always do in this house, that it always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. Someone commented uh, on a previous episode of the podcast on one of the social media platforms. You know, social media. You may have seen it out there online around the traps. And they said to me, "Um, (laughs) you're supposed to say which land you're on. That's the whole point of an acknowledgement of country. Um, Excuse me, mate. You know what? I'm trying not to fucking dox myself by way of an acknowledgement of country. I like to start the podcast in that way. I think it's respectful to do so. But it is not a script. I've worked in offices for years. I've seen what it is when people, white people, my white brothers and sisters, turn an acknowledgement of country into a fucking, you know, like a set script ritual. And they sit there, the awkward white boss sits there looking at the only Aboriginal person in the room as though this is some performance that they have to put on for them. Are you pleased? Um... Where was I? Oh, that's right, I was at the start of my new episode of the podcast. Welcome to the Pork and Feed the Birds. I'm your host, Tom Tanneke. This is the official podcast of Fleetwood Mac, the band. And this song in the background, of course, is officially endorsed and licensed from Fleetwood Mac, the official band. Um, I, I, I do wonder to myself, am I allowed? Like, you know, I've got a tiny podcast, really, so I, I don't know. I'm just putting in the songs that I like. If I do it on YouTube, I will have the uh, a copyright strike if I, um, you know, but but it seems like when you have a dusty little podcast that you, you're just allowed. <laughs> Is that true? I mean, look, if I were Joe Rogan, the podcast, the, what is it called? The Joe Rogan something? The Joe Rogan, um, the Joe Rogan Odyssey? The Joe Rogan Experience, that's right. If I was that, then I imagine there'd be, you know, you'd be getting letters in the mail, you know? You'd be licensing stuff you'd have to consider. But not over here when you're little old the pork and feed the birds. You know, we're not we're not Joe Rogan experience over here. We're not the number one podcast out there. We're the number ah oh, probably three or four. I'm really excited about this episode. Anyway, um, I'm speaking to Nyado Nguyen, who is a lawyer. She is a, an anti-racism advocate, um, a, a regular commentator on affairs that affect the South Sudanese community and indeed all minorities and victims of issues of, related to racism and otherwise. Um, yeah, a lot of respect to for Nyadol and um, I think we had a really, really good chat. Uh, with the exception of my atrocious audio. We had some problems trying to tee up this conversation um, and I am sorry about things from my end. Uh, I, uh, we had several platforms all conk out on us. So when we did get through it having it at the end, it ended up being a, uh, a, an atrociously recorded Skype interview because uh, it was important to me to get the chat done, but it comes at the expense of, um, you know, it's pretty painful. You can hear some background noise when you're listening to me. But the point is not to listen to me anyway. You know, I should be on there and I am on there for a minority of the time. The majority of the time is Nyadol speaking frankly and from the heart about issues of race um, and and racism, far-right grifters, um, the 
atrocious behaviour of our mainstream media towards the South Sudanese community and many other things besides. Um, so get into it. I hope you enjoy. If you do enjoy, as ever, um, please support me. Uh, please leave a lovely review on the old podcast app that you listen to the pork and feed the birds on um if indeed it has the capacity for you to leave a nice review on it um share it around with your mates tell people um you know i know this sick cunt over here he does these sick cunt things and he talks to even more amazing people um go and give him a listen please tell people word of mouth is very important i think because you know i just want the podcast to breathe and i like that we've got a happy little slowly growing family on here um but at the same time you know i i want the people that listen to that, that come onto this podcast i want their voices to be heard they're not always as um uh, as as influential and and well known as nyadol and so um it would be really important to elevate those other voices and if you really, really love the work that I do, which is not just uh, these kinds of things, it also extends to articles, articles that piss people like Lauren Southern off um, greatly. And, of course, videos. We'll be into more of those soon. And many other uh, types of work besides. I'm a, a real all-rounder. Then please consider chucking a clam my way on Patreon. Uh, it would really support me and I'm hoping to really ramp up the Patreon only stuff in my spare time in the future. Uh, but yeah, if you do benefit from the content, then, you know, please consider uh, chucking a clam my way. Anyway, I'm going to shut out now and I'm going to stop playing the officially licensed Fleetwood Mac song. Yeah, well, firstly, thank you so much for coming onto my scrappy little podcast. Welcome. And um, how is how's your pandemic treating you? Um, I've gone through the denial phase. I went through the philosophical phase. Yeah. Uh, now I'm just going through the just this grinding phase where every day is just so hard. I'm ready for it to get over. And I assume you've been working from home for much of the pandemic. Yeah. Well, um, I just did return to work, uh, but yeah. Working in some form or another from home. Of course, you are a lawyer, but also you're you're a well-known advocate, and I'm speaking to you because we all admire your work in this house. So thank you again for coming on. We've just learned recently that the government is intending on introducing English tests for partner visas, which I think is like a cynical and tactical you know, a re-invocation of the wide Australia policy, frankly. I don't see how else to look at it. Do you do you think at all that refugee rights in 2020 is in worse standing than ever in Australia? So my opinion about where things are right now, I think that we are both in a times of great opportunity and also great challenges. I think the conversations about focus on white nationalism, white extremism, white supremacy, which uh, even ASIO now is saying about 40%. I think the recent report was that 40% of their time is now occupied by right-wing extremism. And we've seen the kind of conduct, not conduct, but we, we, we saw the killing of 51 people in New Zealand mm. and white supremacists. We've seen a shift very much, I think, politically to the right across the Western world, or in fact, even far more 
than just to the right, but into like popularism and sort of nationalism. We've seen the increase of uh, white supremacist violence in places like the United States. And, you know, more recently, even um, far-right groups attempting to kidnap, you know, an elected governor. So I think in that context of what is happening in the world, there's a rise of racism and an anti-immigrant sentiment. And I think yeah. that is, in my view, and I don't know to what extent, you know, other who are sort of academic in this space would agree, I actually think a lot of that a lot of what we are seeing with the rise of, you know, extremism and stuff, it's it's driven by anti-immigrant sentiment. Yes, yeah, I totally I agree. Think, I mean, I certainly think that's the most active driving sentiment behind European uh, white supremacy and organised racism. Yeah, and and, and, I mean, it is, and also the election of Donald Trump. I mean, the first thing mm. when he came down that escalator is to accuse Mexicans of being rapists, and then... Mm. You know, what did he do when, when, when I think it was the midterms election, he started talking about the caravan, you know, the caravans that were somehow invading um, the United States. One of his biggest policies, two, th three of his biggest policies have all been migrant related, building the wall, the separation of um, our children from their parents and, and the Muslim band. Yeah. So, so I and, and I think Australian politics is quite influenced also by narrative that are attached to anti-immigrant sentiment. So the African gang narrative, the, the, yes. the birth narrative, and in fact, elections in these countries have been won on anti-immigrant sentiment. And so I think when you look at these things um, as the theme of which is, 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 is driving this emergence of white nationalism, then, then there are a variety of ways that that expresses itself. You know, the mm. The, the increase, in fact, of white supremacist violence. And, you know, if you see them in the United States, they tend to target pattern groups, you know, so there was the, the killings of, uh, I think it was a, a, a shootings in a shopping center that was predominantly, you know, what that, with a lot of Hispanic people, the targeted killing of people in synagogues. Um, so it's very targeted violence, actually, when you think about it. And, and in New Zealand, it was you know, the shooting of people in a, in a mosque. So there's those extremes version of it, but the, 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 then there is the sort of more rhetorical aspect of it. And I think that's what encompasses um, certain, cert, definitely certain government policies, the mandatory detention policy, yes. uh, this, this, this new introduction of, um, of an English test. You know, these this are all exercises in limiting the numbers of people that can come to this country from certain places. And if you look at the accumulative effects of them, the suggestion of who is being, you know, the way they operate with certain position of who they exclude leaves very little room to have doubt that this is just somehow a policy that operate accidentally to exclude certain people. You know, I think I first came across you as an advocate through your campaigning, you know, which you're often doing in the media for the southern South Sudanese migrant community. And, you know, who else has seen recently more scapegoating and ridiculous stereotyping through largely fabricated gang crises and thinly veiled racism and so on? Where do you see that in 2020? You know, it, I suppose that how does the South Sudanese migrant community fare at the moment? Is the community just spared for the time being while the media's turned elsewhere? Or do we think they're going to go back to these things next year when it suits them again? It's a good question. Um, 
Because I don't know, I don't think, I don't even think that at the moment we are necessarily exempt. I just don't think we are, that, that the narrative is particularly useful now. <laughs> yes, that's um, right. Yeah, yeah. Because you still, you still see the, you still see the, the disparity in, in, in the reporting. So my, my problem was not necessarily that you should cover this thing. My issue was the way these things were covered so differently from other similar things and what that yeah. allowed to happen, you know. It yeah. created the idea that we were exceptionally criminal, you know, in nature and inherently a threat. And that those of us that did not necessarily um, become criminals or something were the exception, which is fundamentally a lie because 99% of South Sudanese people and African people and migrant people are just people. They're just going about their day. They're working normal jobs or, you know, as we are now discovering through this pandemic, you know, essential work. Yeah, most of this yep. is working in the aged care facilities, driving our buses, you know, working in our hospitals, you know, our cleaners. Um, so, you know, but the narrative was taking this angle of, you know, making it seem as if somehow it was much more likely for a, a person of my skin color or, or, or origin to be likely a criminal than, say, for example, you know, a lawyer or something like that. I think that mm. was, I think it was frustrating to see that in the media that, you know, and, and, I, and I used to like monitor these things with such a, a level of frustration, you know, like, um, like, a group of mainstream kids would do exactly what a you know a group of Sassanese kid black kid did you know maybe steal a car or something and then it's just reported as young men from Denenong or teenagers from Denenong or Noble Park or whatever did this but when it was you know um, Sudanese kids doing those things then like race became such a central aspect of that storytelling you know Sudanese things and all that and and it just you know and that kind of reporting really sift into the way we lived our life you know like I was concerned when I have brothers who stepped out and they were wearing you know woodies or certain clothes I didn't feel they were safe I wanted them to wear things that somehow suggested that they did not look like gay and I didn't even mm -hmm. know mm -hmm. of course you have to you have to conform to these impossible standards suddenly a, a child going down to the park is potentially the 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 grift for this huge media campaign it's incredible exactly and and there were you know and and it got worse to the point that it wasn't necessarily even criminal behavior now that was the problem normal behavior like gathering together to play basketball in a court now was something that was criminalized or at least had the potential of causing a criminal scene. And so kids were now being criminalized for just being black in certain spaces, you know. Yeah, I remember Channel 7 reporting on some group of kids who were like, you know, they were a gang amassing in the park. But I had a friend who was telling me, it was like live reporting online or something, and I, I had a friend who was living in the area and they said, it's children hanging out in the park. How yeah, absolutely. a gang. And, and the same thing happened too. Like, you know, at that time I was living in a place called Inbrook and there was this ridiculous story that apparently kids were like, you know, uh, creating a mess or something. There was a gang gathering in Inbrook. I lived, you know, three minutes away from there and I heard nothing. 
you know, and I remember going back and, and a few days later, I was on a panel with, with someone who worked in the transport system and he said, we saw nothing. You know how they have monitorings in their videos in the train and all that. He actually told me we saw nothing in, in, on our live feed of this thing. Yet it was a story across a number of media platforms that a gang-related incident occurred. And, and, and not only, you know, then there was the incident of another Sudanese kid studying in a library that were told to leave because people didn't feel safe by the presence of two boys studying, merely because some Sudanese kid had engaged in behavior that was, you know, problematic the day before. And so it was, it's, it's, you know, you begin to think about this thing and you think like how day-to-day -day living had been criminalized, being yeah, black, yeah. fundamentally for being black, you know, and, and it had to do, a big part of it had to do with the way the media chose, and it's a choice, chose to tell these stories. And it's a choice because the way they tell stories that involve the criminality of a person who happens to be black and the criminality of a person to be white are told very differently. One is told in which the white person is only responsible for their criminal behavior. When it's a black kid, it is told as if the whole community somehow is related to that criminal behavior. Collectively responsible. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Collectivism that's demanded from black people, but from white people like myself is never demanded. Of course, if I go and fuck up, it is my mistake. Me alone, of course, I get to just be me. But when anyone South Sudanese should do anything wrong, even if it should be one 14-year-old child that is suddenly representative of the whole community. Yes, and we have to turn up and we have to condemn this behaviour and we have to have we have to make all this performance of regret. As if there is something that automatically doesn't appeal to a to a decent person that that behavior is unacceptable. Mm. Like none of I have never met a South Sudanese person that excuses this behavior, and you will never meet any. You know, it's it's so it's a it's a reaffirmation of who belongs in this country, who is accepted in this country, and and you know what the funny part is, these people get it. Like you know, um, you you know when they when they went and protested in uh, on. Um, on, uh, on St. Kilda Beach. Most of the organizers had uh, criminal records. Some of them had served time in jail, but yeah. they were protesting against the criminality of allegedly black kids because to them, as one of them say, we were born here, they flew here. So they had a right to make mistakes. They had a right to fail because they felt as if this is their country. But the groups of black and brown kids that were born or raised here, they had no right faith. Of course, they yeah. Be good, they could only be perfect, you know, and it, it it's a really interesting thing that you see operates um, bluntly in, in those, you know, like those groups that are just outright racist, they say to you, but you can see sort of the architecture of that thinking, even in very respectable places. Well, there was a study released a year or two ago by Dr. Mario Pioca, which actually demonstrated that most of the most successful talking points of the far right, if you look over the Patriot movement, you know what I mean, like groups who organised that rally that you talked about, mm. True Blue Crew groups like that, most of their talking points were initiated in News Corp papers. All they did was take those talking points and then turn them into the grounds to hold a rally on. You know, but at the end of the day, it started out with them copying Murdoch talking points. Murdoch was making the money, but they were making the, 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 the headlines that the Murdoch media and the rest of the mainstream media could then blame on those extremist groups, you know.
I think there are very different layers of how far-right groups interact with mainstream, mainstream organizations. And I think that's why, and I, well, mainstream organizations, mainstream institutions, and, and I think that why we are so enlivened to the risk of Islamic terrorism, but not so alert to the risk of white supremacy violence. Yeah. They're treated fundamentally differently, you know. So, so I think that the way far-right groups operate, even here in Australia, and the way far-right groups understand systems of power, I think is much more evolved than even some of the people that occupies mainstream spaces in the media and other places. Main media organizations are very alert to that, how that operate and certain politicians are, and that's mm. when the dog whistling. They know who hears that dog whistling. They might not use the same language, but they're on the same wavelength. Then there are the people that I think that the interaction is much more the institutional biases that allow certain things to be given the benefit of the doubt and other right. people to be given the benefit of the doubt. And I think the accumulative effect of the institutional biases plus the intentional excuse and encouragement in certain spaces of these groups allow them a far much greater activities of problematic behaviors that are normalized that will not be normalized for any other group of people. And so to people who are minorities, the massacre of people in New Zealand was not a surprise. They had lived a kind of that life already. If, if you are a person of color, if you are a Muslim person since 9-11, you had always felt as if there's a target on your head. That reality had always existed. That, that, that sensitive way of having to occupy that space already made sense for them. But the people that it always seemed as a far-fetched idea that someone could massacre 51 people are the people in the media in certain spaces because they just don't get it. They don't get it partly because it's not their experiences. They don't have to every day think about how to tell their children to exist in this world. It's almost in the, United, the way in the United States where Black parents have to tell, teach their children how to interact with the police. White parents don't have to do that. So they don't know. They don't know. And, and if white parents don't know and white politicians don't know and white media don't know this, and they predominantly occupy what story they tell us and therefore what things are a threat to us and what we should prioritize, it means that they absolutely have no view or very limited view into the daily existence of minorities groups. And that's why I think media diversity really matters. That's why I think diversity in politics matters because mm. they become those barriers to, to allowing institutional biases to become, to have the accumulative effect of missing big things that actually affect large groups of people that just doesn't happen to have power. The way to, a way to demonstrate this is the way white supremacy is covered you know, this, this, uh, this almost interesting, I call them interesting for lack of a better word, you know, these this, this pieces that tell us, oh, you know, the, you know like the good Nazi piece that we, we saw in the New York Times, for example, where it was talking about yes. 
why he's a Nazi, but how polite he was. The most recent one, you're seeing the ABC, where people that they describe as being armed to the teeth, that they describe that we're actually trying to contain violence because they didn't think it's a good look, that were later found to be involved in planning the kidnapping of a governor, you know, they, they, they still managed to call this, you know, to, to, to suggest that they thought that these people were just dressing up, you know? Of course, yeah. Yeah. Around it. You, 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 you think in the context of, you know, in the context of us knowing that white supremacy's violence and white extremism is on the rise, you think, why is it that what, what, what seemed to be, why, where did the benefit of the doubt come in? Because actually to me, the facts seem to suggest that it was likely that these people would engage in violence if they had an option, you know, like, it's so I think to me, it matters how close you are to that violence being targeted at you. And then meanwhile, I suppose when you, when you are looking at groups who are the subject of, of, of this kind of, you know, hostile media treatment, the, the, the way that the media gets to behave is like incredibly cynical. Like we, we remember that moment where a Daily Mail photographer approached some South Sudanese kids at High Point, got right in their faces to take photos of them. And then when they reacted badly, called the police who arrested them and then the <laughs> photographer got to make that the news. Precisely. Precisely. And, and, and until today, we don't even know whether that photographer was ever held accountable for anything. But those kids were probably held accountable for by being arrested. And, and some of the photos even that were published include the photos of those children being arrested. And then it was reported as another incident of you know, latest incident of African gang violence that was entirely manufactured by the behavior of a journalist, a photographer. And to me, that's, that's just, you just don't have words for it. You know, I mean, it's just yeah. such, it's such deep layer of total disregard, total mm, disregard for a group of young people to expose them to being arrested and to being publicly humiliated like that for a fucking photograph. So yeah. you think somehow that your story is far more important. Your manufactured story is far more important than the lives of black kids, you know, and that's permissible. That should not be permissible behavior in any industry. You shouldn't be able to do that and get away with it. And I think that's reasonable. You know, I just, you know, I just absolutely break my heart when I think about those boys because nobody deserves to be treated like an animal. You know, they're not, they're not animals in the zoo who you have the right to go and photograph. You're not on a safari, you know. And, and you know, to me, it's just, it's just an example of what I've witnessed in this space of having to engage media. And I've witnessed some things that really really, 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 really damage your faith and your trust in mm. really fundamentally because you, you, you know that you mean, you mean nothing but a story. Absolutely Machiavellian in nature, I think. It's like when I was thinking to myself, which is worse, is genuine racism of white, so white supremacist groups and all the covert racists out there. Is that worse than 
tactical racism of the media, where they, you know, they'll, they'll basically invent a narrative in order to, you know, to profit from it. I can't tell, but I do think that the tactical racism of politicians in the mainstream media is more damaging because they do it cynically to exploit views for clicks or for It reminds me of um, what Ma uh, Martin Luther King said about moderate liberals and how moderate liberals. <laughs> were far more greater challenge to the progress of, you know, uh, African-Americans than the Ku Klux Klan's because, and, and that's the same sometimes, sometimes moderate, what appear for moderate mainstream media is, is, is far more problematic than, than the extreme one because you can call out the extreme ones, you know. You can, you can be able to say, you know, uh, that's, that, that's just unacceptable. And it's clear because they're clear about it. So the conversation is, it's quite clear. You're on that side. The thing with the, with, with, with the media is that they've bought into the idea of their own objectivity. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And, 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 you know, and, 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 and of course, and, and, and I think that's to some degree acceptable, the important role that they play in the society. But I think that they, they are misguided in, the way there is really no clear conversation about the fact that the media, like any other aspect of our society, has the same inherent biases and failures and systematic biases and failures. And those systematic biases and failures are plainly obvious to anybody who is not part of the mainstream. Example I showed you, the way they discover stories. I can tell you by just reading a story whether or not this is a story that is speaking about, especially certain story, a white person, a Muslim person, or an African person. I can, I can be able to tell you, you know, I've read story and be like, yep, I, I, I know that was not done by a Sudanese person because if it was, I would have been told. You know, there was a story of, you know, uh, people, of, um, uh, and, and we've seen the same reporting even during this COVID. And, and, and some uh, thing is Keaton, where he goes through this list of, of how, when it's like migrant people, we are told where they're from or their ethnicity and all that. Yes, is, yes, you know, yeah. Somehow these, 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 these things just disappear. So that kind of storytelling plays a big part in creating the image of problemat problematizing certain group of people as you know, terrorist as violent as it plays a huge part in that narrative. Then that kind of narrative, the certain extremist group find it as a justification to take it even further. I think one of the earlier ones that I came into your work was your you had a huge personal hand in preventing Gavin McInnes from coming here. You know, you had that hugely successful petition that you created with I think uh, Karen Phelps and Marsha Langton. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, uh, for my part, and also this on behalf of lots of anti-fascists, we were we were in the middle of gearing up with Yard, you know, yelling for racist dogs. So what would have been a really conflict-heavy tour, and of course, I would have done it would have done all this damage to our discourse because every horrible thing he would have said would have been blasted all over the mainstream media, as we know. So you know, I guess many of us are so personally grateful to you because I think you saved a lot of people. A lot of hell and strife. <laughs> really did. So, was that a difficult time for you in terms of facing abuse from online trolls and all? Yeah, it was. And I was also heavily pregnant, you know. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, 
but you know, like, and the thing that I I I still struggle with is 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 until just like how how did we even have to get to that point? Like, how was this not obvious? You know, and I used to be haunted by what Gavin McGinnis say. Our job is to bash the shit out of people and for the authority to turn a blind eye. And it yeah. felt like the very act of us getting authority to look was affirming his position that they were turning a black, blind eye. Because mm-hmm. no way, you and I know this, there is no way that a Muslim boy who talk about shooting people, choking them, punching them, that, you know, he support violence, would have had a chance in having his, their visa approval to come to Australia. We just know that. That's, yeah. Here we were having to literally campaign for someone whose a group he formed was engaging in systemic violence. This was not one-off incidents of violence, so systemic violence that had got the attention of the FBI. And, you know, this was a listed hate group by yeah. group research hate groups. It was, it did not make sense to me. And, it, and again, I think that affirms the privilege that you get to enjoy when you are a white man, because I could not see black or brown kids engaging in that in, intense level of violence and violent conduct and, and, and even getting an attention to get to come to this country. Well, and here's the thing. It took, it took Gavin McInnes's level of honesty because I actually think his views and his approach is quite reflective of the majority of how far-right uh, figures and reactionaries were at that time. It's just that Gavin was more honest about it. And he was honest enough about it in his public mm-hmm. things on his podcast and what have you. That, that but you, you know what I found interesting, though, is that even though he was honest enough, people still wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt and said it was comedy. It was satire. He was just joking. You know, like all this, like this permissory language. Oh, who, is, who, is, who is saying on his video, yes, I support violence. What does it take? What does it take to take violence, white extremism seriously? What does it take? I mean, even now that we've seen 51 people murdered in cold blood, we're still not taking it seriously enough. The same theory that was contained in Rick Tarrant's manifesto, uh, the, one of the most prominent promulgators of that same theory, now yeah. lives here and is able to recommence yeah. her career with a veneer of um, respectability, you know, a paltry, thin veneer of respectability. That's all it takes, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they, they are a commentator on, um, on, on, on our mainstream media, someone who popularised, and, and that's what the, the Wikipedia page says, they popularize the great replacement theory, which is the same theory that, you know, the white supremacists killer in New Zealand um, bought into. I just wrote an article talking about that. We received, uh, True Crime News Weekly received some information about her visa terms, and I wrote an article so we're looking into that information and and what happened subsequently to that? Oh, she, she called for Peter Dutton to send his stormtroopers to come and uh, raid uh, our stuff and also sent us a defamation threat. When a white supremacist white woman howls, the entire nation listens at things. Yeah, no, no, I, I don't see why necessarily they, they wouldn't get that treatment. Like, even the way she's, even the way she's speak, like, she knows she's protected, you know. Mm. She, she, she knows she's, she knows she can appeal to authority. And you know what? She's not wrong. 
just like Gavin McGuinness was not wrong, you know, and it's, it is, it is for me, I think it is for me, the question that I ask myself is a minority. How safe are you truly? And to be honest, I don't think I can satisfactorily answer that. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I don't think that I am as safe as a white supremacist who moved to here. But I know she's probably more safer than I am. You've had experience with abuse before. I won't mention their name because they're local and they, they would love it if their name was mentioned here. But you recently gained the attention of one uh, far-right grifter in Australia who made a video about you. And that basically, the whole point of that is to set a, a troll army onto you. And in the process of that, you located that one of those people was a, a police officer, as I recall. And then, yeah. but, then, but then that led to mainstream media coverage of that which led to further trolling. It's a weird, it's strange, it's strange. It's another evidence of that kind of relationship between the, the mainstream media and the far-right grifters who provoke them further. You know, it's this real Machiavellian circle, isn't it? You know, it's a hard place to be caught in because even when you sort of are experiencing abuse, you, you don't know whether keeping quiet is the best level of protection because, if you, if you know, the more attention these people get, the more really it's sort of a win for them. If they can get that institutional protection, then it kind of validates their 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 um, their agenda. Hey, uh, you know, any kind of rubbish. I was, quite, I was quite surprised to see him being treated as like a legitimate journalist by certain media organisations. Like this person has engaged in a number of criminal behaviour. Like I consider it to be a permanent game of whack-a-mole. In fifteen years, he'll still be doing it. He'll still be trying his hardest to get mainstream validation and we'll still be left picking up the pieces because he's just he's just a, a, a terminally compelled to to seek uh, uh self-marketing and self-promotion he'll just never ever give up now, in fact he's remarkable about it um but yeah you do wonder that people you know that these memories from mainstream sources are so remarkably you know do they have amnesia do they forget who he is you know it's amazing and it makes you realise that you've got to be very careful because in the end, you are actually technically on your own. You know, when, you, when you're either personally overwhelmed by the kind of like the predatory nature of the trolling, because, you know, I have had insults against me. I've had insults against my family. I've, I've insults directed at my children. I have, you know, stopped using social media in certain ways. I am very conscious now about my safety. I, you know, I am conscious when I'm in public um, spaces. I, I am conscious when I'm walking with my children in public spaces because I just don't know necessarily who's going to confront me, you know. I know that you have gained a thick skin, but it's just a tragedy that you have to, isn't it? It's an inevitability, but also a, a tragedy, you know. It's I have developed a thick skin, but I have to also tell you that I have thought about, you know, for me, in, in some things, I have I have small children. One of my worst nightmare is having one of these idiots approach me with my kids because with your children, yeah. You know, one of the person we're talking about here have indeed like turn up at people's houses. You know, yes. you know. So it's just like, this is a person who whose behavior is not. They, they've disclosed people personal information. They've turned up at people's houses, and so for me, like there is a, also a level of like guilt of. Have, am I exposing my children to this harassment? Like, it's one thing for me to be harassed, but 
to feel that I have equally created that environment around my children, you know, that to me is really hard to deal with because it gets to the point where I have asked myself whether I should take my children out of this country. Because, because I, of these abuse talks, it's very upsetting. Yeah, I could never forgive myself if I was approached by one of these idiots with my kids, and somehow my my kid either is in some ways armed by it. I would feel like I brought that on them. You've only benefited the community in Australia. You've only benefited not just my communities, but all of us through your addition to the discourse. You know, yeah. And sometimes it takes. You know, you kind of have to remind yourself or have the other people around you. You're doing the right thing. You're actually helping people. You're helping the, the livelihoods of other people. But it just comes with such a toll and it's atrocious, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and you know, I mean, and it does come with a level of, of a level of and I think that the people who engage in this behavior know that know the toil and the pressure that they're putting on you by targeting their attention on you. Because so so there is just the as the, the, the physical aspect of because some of these people um have harassed African kids just hanging out in public. So you know that they have the potential to sort of come and harass you. They have no, yes. you know. So, yeah. so it's, not, it's, not, it's not that you've now sort of narrowed your safety publicly. It, it's the, the pressure also of just kind of the psychological pressure it's always put in. You then turn up to work with a the, with the clear mind after, after staying up all night until 2 a.m. for something, blocking and checking your security online just to make sure that they're not, you know, that they're not finding ways to abuse you. Um, I no longer, for example, uh, put pictures of my children anywhere online. Totally. These security principles, you have to learn them, don't you? Yeah, you know, yeah exactly. Like, it's a uh, steep uphill curve, but you have to learn them, don't you? Absolutely. I, 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 I try, you know, I try to actively not have members of my family follow me online because I don't want them tracked down. <laughs> it's, it's all this, you know, it's, it's, it's a, your, your security online is also another. It's your, your ability to just function normally and go to work and enjoy your role and just focus that can also get out of the way. So you have to be really, really, really active in looking after yourself. I started doing anti-fascist stuff in 2016. Before that, I was a very public person and I did creative stuff. I had a lot of work online. I had to completely go through and erase every breadcrumb about my personal life, you know, mm. from that point. Like, again, you know, I didn't really have any skeletons in the closet, but I also didn't want these people, when I started getting doxxed and what have you, to, to find out about my personal life. And you really just have to go, you really have to rethink your entire life in, in a way, don't you? Yeah, not just rethink your life here, but also just not. Like, there are times, honestly, particularly when it's just intense and, you know, because for me, like, my kids are my world. So, yes, yeah. You know, so if for me the idea of security to them is not being in this country, I won't think about it twice. Oh, well, I just, I, you know, for my time, I can't just, I just can't tell you how many the people there are, the anti fascist community, everyone else who does have the back in the we all are, you know, because I don't you know well with any of us know how difficult it can all be, you know. And I found out that the, Pauline Hanson thing from last year, and this is just one of a million instances like this, but the mm. Channel 9 paid for her yeah, to go exactly. in order to stoke outrage at her, which is incredible. It's another one of these issues with mainstream media intentionally stoking racism and moral panic because Machiavellian process. What should we be legislating so that the media 
have more um, accountability measures in place? Do you think this should start in Parliament? Do you think the government can be trusted? What's your, <laughs> what needs to be done? I think the first thing and the obvious thing is is that you can't make you can't make decisions for a multicultural society like Australia without having the, the, a similar level of diversity in media, in politics, uh, in places where decisions are being made. And so that's where the first century occurs. It's like organization taking diversity really seriously, not as a politically correct step, but actually as a necessary step to sort of create the kind of society that has a rich diversity of ideas. And I don't think that we see much change until that happens. And we've had reports after reports, particularly about lack of media diversity, for example. Mm. Um, and so long as that remains the case, I, I, just, I just don't see how things change because media has such a big role in framing what is important, what, what we should be focusing on, what is our priority, what is a threat, you know. Um, and when those are framed from a group of people that come from similar or predominantly similar background and experiences, it's a very impoverished version of what this country is, if indeed we accept that this country is as diverse as it is. Well, thank you so much for all your insight. Whenever this bloody lockdown ends, what is it that you're looking forward to doing the most? Uh, honestly, just catching up coffee with friends. I wouldn't mind going for a walk too, like not coming <laughs> outside my 5Ks. <laughs> a good 6K walk, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tell everyone where we can find you and discover a little more about your work. Please don't find me. <laughs> <laughs> good people. Yeah. Uh, no, I think Twitter is the best place because that's where I sort of like express a lot of things. Um, that's your sort of online home, hey? Yep. Yeah, that's probably my sort of yeah online home predominantly. The other ones, I'm not. I I, I intentionally try and not go on other platforms because I find that the more platforms you create, the more platforms for potential harassment and whatever. You know, thank you so much for your time. I'm really really grateful. Thank you, thank you. Well,